Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to uh, grab a Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians and turn to the third chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there are some Bibles like this back there. If you need a Bible, it is on page 953 in that particular copy of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This past week, as I was preparing for this message on this particular text, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9, I listened to a sermon by a preaching pastor that I have a great respect for, uh, namely Alistair Begg. And in that sermon, Dr. Begg asked a question of his congregation that I would like to ask of you this morning. He said, what would it look like in here in a worship service if we all came this morning to the worship service dressed not according to our age in life or our station in life or our stage in life, but rather we came dressed according to our stage of spiritual development, according to how mature we are in the faith as disciples of Jesus. You know, we kind of all dress basically our age group, right? If you're a baby, none of you are, but if you are a baby or a toddler, uh, you're probably going to be wearing a diaper and a onesie, and shoes are definitely optional, right? If you're a child or a teenager, you're still going to dress pretty comfortable, right? Maybe shorts, maybe jeans, maybe slides or flip-flops, still keeping it pretty low-key. If you're more getting toward my stage of life, more in the adult, middle-aged years. You know, throw on a collared shirt. Ladies, a skirt, maybe. You don't have to, but you might. And you're generally wearing socks and shoes, generally. I'm not judging anyone this morning if you're not. And if you're more in that senior age group, well, you're, you're more likely to dress up a little bit for a church service like this because, after all, you know, you probably grew up in an era where that was kind of expected, and so you, you feel like you should dress up, and that's great. But we, we tend to dress our age and our station in life. But what if we were dressed this morning according to where we are in our spiritual development, our years, our maturity in the faith? If that were the case, it would be altogether possible for there to be a, a teenager here in dress slacks and a golf sweater with a long white beard walking on a cane. Because it's entirely possible to be a teenager and to be very mature in the faith. At the same time, there would be some folks in my station of life who would be wearing that diaper and dressed in those clothes that came from Gymboree or Baby Gap. Because it's possible to be very many years into the Christian faith and yet not be very mature. To still be a spiritual toddler or a spiritual baby. And that, in fact, is the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing this morning in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. That was the issue that he was bringing, he's bringing up here with the Corinthian church. You, he's saying, you guys are all a bunch of spiritual babies when it comes right down to it. You're still wetting your spiritual pants. And it needs to be addressed. It's a serious thing. And so in our text this morning, Paul is writing to correct the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthian church. And, and that word comes to us this morning as God's word, as instruction for us, his people. So let's look at God's word this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses one through nine. The apostle writes, and the Spirit speaks to us this morning. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it. 
for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Friends, this is God's holy word, and thanks be to God for his word this morning. This text divides up pretty, pretty straightforwardly into two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 9. And I, I sense Paul speaking to the Corinthian church as their spiritual father and, and as, as sort of a... Um, uh, sort of doctor of their souls, giving them soul care. And so this morning I want to think of, of Paul as a physician, as someone giving soul care, and think of our text this morning as a diagnosis by Dr. Paul in verses, verses 1 through 4, and a remedy that he gives in verses 5 through 9. So let's pr proceed that way. Verses 1 through 4 then, let's begin with the diagnosis. Paul identifies the presenting problem in the body of Christ. He's a doctor looking at the body of Christ. He's, he's looking at the body of Christ at Corinth, and he's saying, the issue here is one of stunted growth. I'm looking at the body at Corinth, and it is unusually small for its age. Now, we parents, especially when our kids are young, are, are fond of having folks come to us and saying, my, your child, they're getting so big. I haven't seen them for a few months, and they're just getting so big and so tall. And that's an affirmation to us that wherever our child is, whatever stage, that they're growing, and, and we feel good about that. And, and even if they're, um, you know, a little bit smaller for their age, the fact that they're growing is always an encouragement to us. But... If our child would just stop growing and after a year or two still be the same height and still be the same uh, weight that they were a year previous, we would know that something very seriously wrong was going on there. And we would want that child to receive medical attention. And Paul is saying that's the case here. You're not just a little small for your age, church at Corinth, but your growth has been stunted. And this is really serious. Paul begins in the first verse and in the first part of verse 2, thinking back. Notice that, the, that he's talking in the past in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. He's saying, I could not, past tense, address you as spiritual. And, and you, you were infants in Christ. Notice they are in Christ. He's addressing them as believers. And so I fed you spiritual milk. Paul is thinking back of when he first came to Corinth and he first preached the gospel there and a, and, and a group of believers responded there. And he spent 18 months planting that church and, and grounding the believers there in the faith and in the word of God. And he's, he's thinking back about that. I preached the gospel to you. You responded by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. And as, as brand new Christian, as, as baby Christians, I didn't feed you a, a spiritual steak. I didn't, I didn't go right to the deep things of the faith. We didn't start on day one uh, talking about what is predestination and, and what is election and, and all of that. No, we, we started with the basics. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who are you now as his child? What does it mean to be trusting in him for salvation? What does it mean that you're forgiven of your sins? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that you're part of the universal church? What is prayer? How do, we write, how do we read our Bibles? I started with spiritual milk. And you know what Paul says? That was fine. 
That was completely appropriate where, for where you were in the stage of your spiritual development. You know, we don't fault our children when they're babies that they can't, you know, chew on a piece of meat or, or, or grab a piece of pizza for themselves and eat it. You know, we give them, we give them milk. We give them formula. We give them that mushed up stuff in the little jars. The jars work really good to keep nails and uh, screws in and things, I've noticed. But the stuff that came in them, absolutely gross. But it's all mushed up and it's good for them. And they can, they can eat it when they're small. And that's okay. That's what's appropriate. Paul says, back then, I fed you spiritual milk. And it was totally appropriate. But now, fast forward, he says in the second half of verse 2, even now, or, or indeed, or in fact now, you are not ready for the kind of spiritual food I ought to be able to feed you. I ought to be able to feed you a little bit of meat right now in terms of your understanding of the gospel. In fact, that's what Paul wants to do. Last week uh, from chapter 2, verses 6 to the end, uh, we looked at how Paul was saying, yes, there is something that is authentically the wisdom of God. It is, it is the deep things of God, it is the revelation, it is the mystery of the gospel that was revealed, that was concealed, but that is now being revealed. God's unfolding grand plan of redemption, and it's glorious, and, and we're never going to get to the bottom of it, but we're going to keep on drilling down deeper into it. Paul says, that's the wisdom of God that I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to be able to impart that to you now. But the fact of the matter is, I, I can't. Notice Paul doesn't just say he won't do it. He says, I can't do it. It'd be as foolish as, as giving a baby a steak. You, you, you won't be able to handle it. It'll, it won't agree with you. No, Paul isn't hesitant to give true, to impart true wisdom, the, the deep things of God to those who are who spiritually mature and ready to handle it. But here he's not able Kind of reminds me of Colonel Nathan Jessup in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. He was the bad guy. Paul is the good guy in the story. Just don't get those two confused. Bad example. <laughs> Paul says you can't digest the deep things of God, verse 3, because you are still of the flesh. You're still of the flesh. I want to speak to you as spiritual people. Paul just set those categories. If you just look up a few verses at the end of chapter 2, he set up two, two types of people. There is the natural person. And uh, Jeff spoke about that as he led us into communion, that we are all naturally dead in our trespasses and sins until the glory of Christ in the gospel is revealed to us. We understand that we are, in, we are sinners and Jesus is a great savior and we repent of our sin and our rebellion and we turn to him in repentance and faith and the Holy Spirit indwells us. And then we are a spiritual person. And so Paul sets up those two types of people and he says, you're in Christ, but I can't address you as spiritual people, which is really ironic for the Corinthians. Because this was kind of their little tag term. You know, sometimes we have little tag terms like that in the church. Oh, he or she is really anointed. That's really a God thing over there. I keep doing that. I did that last, year, last week, didn't I? I'm trying to get away from air quotes. Um, we have these tag terms, and this was a little term in their church world as well. Oh, who are the really spiritual people? Who are the people who are really connected to the hot shots and the heroes of the faith, faith like Paul and Apollos? They're the spiritual ones. They're at another place. And the irony is Paul says, no, not only are you at that, not at that other place, you're, you're acting like you're not even in the faith. You're acting fleshly. Notice in verse 1 that he says, Before, past, when I was here five or so years ago planting the church, you were, you were as people who were flesh of the flesh, verse 1. And then he, he uses what looks like almost the same term in verse 3, you are still of the flesh. And it's just, it's a real slight nuance in the original, but you could, that first of the flesh in verse one, it, it means more, you're, you're kind of flesh-y. 
And that's expected because you were still infants in the faith. But now, verse 3, you're, you're fleshly. You're living in a, in a fleshly manner. You're living according to the world. You're living according to the dictates of this present age. Now, you've been transferred into the age of Messiah and the new kingdom. Yes, you're still living in the present age, but, but you're acting like you're still rooted there when your new citizenship is in the age to come. And so I can't speak to you as spiritual people. You're behaving, he says in, at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4, in a merely human way. Merely human way. Now, that, that causes me to ask the question, well, is that a bad thing? Is being human a bad thing? And the answer, I think, is emphatically no. It's not a bad thing to be human, particularly if you were created to be a human being. And that's exactly what we were created to be. We were created by God as humans to be humans. We weren't created as gods. We weren't created as angels. We weren't created as aardvarks. We were created as human beings in the image of God. And we were created to glorify God by reflecting his image as human beings. The problem, going back to the, the, the beginning of the big story told in Genesis, is that the image of God has been severely distorted in all of us. Going back to our original parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, and their, their fall into sin and their, their desire to, to, to be like God and not to trust the authority of God and live under the cover of his covenant love, trusting his word, but, but seeking to go their own way and in that sense be their own gods. And we do the very same thing, each one of us. And so the result is that sin has tainted every aspect of our human existence. The, the, the theological term for that is total depravity. doesn't mean that we're totally depraved in the sense that, that everything we do and are is as bad as it possibly can be, but the totality of our existence. There is no aspect of our human existence in life that is not tainted and stained by sin. And so in this present age, being human is, is inextricably tied to being fallen and sinful. But remember, folks, it was not always that way. And it will not always be that way. That's why we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. Because when he comes, he is going to make all things new, including removing the presence of indwelling sin in all of his people. Somebody say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But in the meantime, Jesus came to restore the image of God in his people. He came to show us what it means to live as truly human. Do you think about that Jesus that way? I know we want to always affirm the full and complete divinity of Jesus Christ. He is 100% God, but he came in the flesh. And in the flesh, he was a human being the same as you and me. And as a human being, and as a sinless human being, living and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, he showed us what does it mean to truly be human, to truly live as God created us to live, for his glory, reflecting his image. Jesus came and showed that to us. And those who are now united with him by his Spirit, through faith, are now, are now a part of that, that new age, that age of Messiah. And the Spirit is already now in the process of restoring the image of God in us, little by little, who, the, we who are his people. And so Paul says of believers at the end of chapter 2, you are no longer natural persons, but rather you are you, are, you are, ought to be, you are spiritual people in, if you're in the faith. He sets up two categories, natural people, spiritual people, those who are in Christ. And so they, they ought not act in a merely this world, fleshly, carnal way. And when they do, and when we do, that is a problem. 
And so the presenting problem that the physician Paul presents here is that there are Christians who are acting like non-Christians. Christians who, who are, not, it's not just that they sin once in a while or, or mess up, certainly we all do, but that the pattern of their life is very much like the world. Their spiritual growth has been stunted. Now that's the presenting problem. Those are the symptoms. But, but as a skillful doctor, Paul doesn't stop there. No, any skillful doctor wants to get to the source of the problem. And so, so he digs down to the, to the root cause. And he, he nails it in the middle of verse 3 when he says, There is jealousy and there is strife among you. There's jealousy and strife among you. The, the, the problem with your stunted growth is your problem. It's not the fault of your small group leader. It's not the fault of the Bible translation you're reading. It's not your boss's fault for scheduling you on Sunday morning. It's not the worship leader's fault for picking the wrong songs. It's not your parents' fault for whatever they did or didn't do. He says it's your responsibility. You're accountable. Remember the form that that jealousy and that strife was, was taking in this particular church at Corinth. It was that of latching onto these spiritual heroes. I'm of the Paul group. I'm of the Apollos group. It was a sense of rivalry and competition that, that happened out there in the world, but it was now being translated within the church, within God's people. It was this pride and association. There was jealousy, Paul said, envy, rivalry. You want what others have. You can't have joy in their success. You always have to be first. And there's, as a result, strife. There's, there's relational friction. There's, there's quarreling. There's one-upsmanship. There's, there's picking of sides and there's cliques. And that, friends, he says, is the heart issue. It has to do with, with what your heart wants and, and, honestly, what your heart is worshiping. You're worshiping heroes. And, and really, you're worshiping heroes because of what you perceive worshiping that particular hero or, or, or Christian personality, what it says about you. So you're sort of picking your Christian heroes based on your own sort of personal pride in, in, in the way it'll make you look. So Paul's diagnosis to the church is that your growth is severely stunted because your hearts are filled with desires for status and recognition and the praise of others. Uh, you're really intoxicated with your own success. You're filled with pride and that is showing up in the life of the body as a whole. What can we take away from Paul's diagnosis of this issue, of this, of this disease in the church at Corinth? What might the Spirit be teaching us? Three lessons I want to point toward from Paul's diagnosis. Three takeaways for us this morning. Number one is that Christians are expected to grow. Christians are expected to grow. There's a certain expectation that is, that is assumed in this passage that as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we're expected to grow. And, and the, the issue is not perfection, but it is one of direction. The issue is not, do you ever struggle with sin? Yes. The issue is, do you not ever fall? We do in this life. But the issue is, what is the pattern of your life? Is the pattern of your life one of, of direction where, where, where sanctification, the process of growth in the Christian faith, is that happening in your life? Sometimes slowly, yes. Sometimes more rapidly, yes. It, it's not a chart with a perfect line going like that. It's a, it's a bumpy line, but if you did chart, could chart your spiritual growth somehow, is, is there not a direction that shows that God is working out his good purposes in your life. It's unfortunate that this passage has um, suffered in more recent generations from some misunderstandings of the terminology. Uh, particularly a term that 
I bet some of you are familiar with, and some of you are going to be like, what is he talking about right now? But it is this term of, of being a carnal Christian. Paul uses the term here that in speaking to the believers, notice they're believers at Corinth, that you are of the flesh, or that's a word that could be translated carnal. And so some have looked at this passage and, and thought that Paul was creating two sort of categories of Christians. You have spiritual Christians who really have it going on, and then you have carnal Christians who, you know, somehow they got their eternal fire insurance, they got their get-me-out-of-hell-free card, and now they're just kind of stuck. And I just wasn't sure if this was still an issue out there, and I just kind of Googled it, and I, all kinds of stuff on carnal Christians came up. And one author writing about being a carnal Christian said, a carnal Christian is a Christian who does not trust God. Let me say that again to see if any red flags go up in your mind. A carnal Christian is a Christian who does not trust God. Trusting God <laughs> through Jesus Christ, friends, is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. And I don't think Paul was here trying to set up hard and fast categories of sort of a two-tiered level of Christianity. He was exhorting them with all his heart, don't be carnal. Don't, don't follow that path. I know you're still in the present age. It is the age of the flesh. It is the age of this world. I know you're still living there, but your, your citizenship is in heaven. By God's grace, he has revealed to you this unfolding plan of redemption through Jesus Christ, centered at the cross, his, his broken body, his shed blood on behalf of his people, all who would look to him in faith. And because of that, because of the Spirit's work, you are now his child. You, you are part of the new age. And so, so don't live. Don't live tied to this world even yet while you're still in it. Don't live by the value systems of this world. As believers, God, there's the ex expectation of growth. Not perfection, but Direction. And so the first place to look if we sense that we're not growing is to come before God and to look into our own hearts. It's not somebody else's fault. Come humbly before God and look to him. God, if I'm not growing, help me to see that. Second takeaway, second lesson, I want to encourage us to receive correction as a gift from God. Paul is clearly giving correction to the church at Corinth. But notice that it is, it is a gift from God to receive that. I mean, wouldn't it, it would be just downright cruel of God when in our lives, when we're beginning to stumble, when we're living carnally, more like the world than like a believer, if God would just kind of let that go well, I guess she's just not getting it. I'll check back in a couple months and see if things are getting any better. But God is so good. He is so good that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin in our lives. He is so good to give us brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who will say, hey, I, I may be wrong here, but I'm just noticing something. And I just, I love you so much, I can't, I can't let it slide. I, I just, this is what I'm, I'm observing. It, you know, what's going on there in your life? Notice Paul's appeal here as, as earlier in the book. He, he, he addresses them again as brothers and sisters, just like he did in chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's appealing with authority. He's the apostle but he's appealing as a brother in Christ. I'm right with you guys. You are my brothers and sisters. And so I'm coming to correct you as a fellow journeyer who's following Jesus Christ as a fellow disciple. And so when the Lord is kind enough in his grace to, to begin to correct us, to begin to convict us, we ought to receive that as a gift from him. 
And then thirdly, as the Lord convicts us of our worldliness, of our carnality, of our fleshliness, don't just treat the symptoms, confront the disease. We need not just to treat the symptoms, but to confront the disease. If you went into the hospital today, I hope you don't, unless you work there, um, as a couple of you do. If you went into the hospital with an inflamed appendix and the physician assigned some painkiller, I'm morphine, I don't know, what would you give for an inflamed? I have no idea. Morphine would probably do the trick. That's what they gave to the guy in Private Ryan, so I know that would do the trick. If the doctor gave you morphine, that would probably make you feel better, but it wouldn't really address the situation. What needs to happen is something radical, surgery, they need to cut you up, cut you open and get that thing out of there. It's inflamed, it's gonna do you harm. In the same way as, as the Spirit convicts us and we look into our own hearts, we need to be willing not just to, to treat the symptoms, but to confront the disease. If pornography is an issue, getting filters on all your computers and being in 17 accountability groups may be a great idea, but it doesn't cure the lust that's in your heart. And it doesn't address the issue of finding superior pleasure and superior joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hard issue. If you struggle with envy, like the Corinthians did, and you look at other people's lives, and you know, you're constantly saying, why do they get to do that? Why don't I have that? Why am I always struggling with this? You can avoid the people you envy. You could unfriend them on Facebook and not see all the wonderful things they're eating and all the nice places they're going to. But it wouldn't really address the heart issue of, of why am I not satisfied with what the Lord has given me? When the Lord is kind enough to convict us of sin, we ought to address not just the symptoms, but go to the heart issue. Here in the first part of our passage, verses 1 through 4, Paul chastises the Corinthians because of their spiritual immaturity, which is evidenced by their fleshly attitudes toward one another, the jealousy and the strife that's evident among them. He'd like to speak to them words of authentic wisdom, deep gospel truth. But he's not able because of their lack of spirituality. They're still baby Christians. Their spiritual growth has been stunted. And so his diagnosis of the problem is that they are intoxicated with personal advancement and status. And that that has taken the priority over their spiritual growth and the cultivation of their of their growth of their own souls and the care of their own souls. And although they are citizens of Messiah's new kingdom, they're continuing to think and they're continuing to behave as if they were still tied to this present age. That is the diagnosis. Let's move on to the remedy in verses 5 through 9. There's good news. There's a remedy. Paul needs to correct their they're bad thinking, quite honestly. Remember last week we talked about Christian maturity being the result of the Spirit's work of transform, transformation in the believer, transforming what we think. What goes on between our ears is hugely important as disciples of Jesus. And maturity happens with believers as the Spirit transforms the way we think and reveals God's wisdom to us empowering us to think more like Jesus, to Christ-like thinking, which ought to result in Christ-like actions. The Corinthians' perspective is, has been skewed by their own selfish heart desires. They're not, they're not thinking from a kingdom perspective. What they want has messed up how and, and what they think about. What they want is recognition from other people. 
And that colors how they view, how they look at, at people in general. In particular, it colors how they look at, at the ministers or the church leaders that have come through their midst. So first, Paul needs to correct their understanding of the role of Christian leaders. See, they viewed Paul, who came there first to, to establish the church, and then Paulo, Apollos, who Paul later sent to Corinth uh, to, be, to be a leader and a minister among them. They're viewing these guys as super apostles, really big deals. These are their heroes in the faith. These are the, these are the podcasts they're listening to. These are the books that they're reading. And so they're going to become a big deal based on who they associate with. They look at, they look at Apollos. And then who is Apollos to the Corinthian church? Apollos is the man. I mean, have you ever heard him speak? He's so eloquent and he just nails it and the illustrations he uses. And boy, just heaven comes down when he preaches. And who is Paul? Paul. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Corinthians are mostly Gentiles. He is the apostle. Jesus called him in particular and said, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is a big deal. That's who he is. And here, interestingly enough, Paul corrects their thinking about him and about Apollos, not by saying who they are, notice, but verse 5, instructing them about what they are. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? And the first answer he gives is that they are merely servants. They're servants. They're not the masters, they're the servants. They have a function. And this, this word, which is the word from which we get the word deacon, but in originally it, it, it means just kind of a, a low-level servant. Maybe like the person who busses your table. You know, you don't even talk, you, do, you talk to the waiter, you maybe have a conversation and, in order with them and find out where they're from, but, but the person who busses your table, they're just kind of silent. They just kind of come by and grab a plate while you're not looking, maybe fill your, your water and like, I don't even know how that happened. Paul says, that's really who Apollos and I and other Christian leaders, that's really our role. We're just servants. Yes, he says, you believed, you came to faith through us, but let's face it, that was all God's doing. He's the one who gave the faith. He's the one who provided the growth. He's the one who decided, he assigned our roles. Yeah, I came in, and if you think about it sort of in agricultural terms, uh, I planted and Apollos watered, but, you know, that's just the way God decided to do it. We didn't have anything to do with, with the crop, with the harvest, with the increase. He's the one who caused the faith to grow in you. We were simply tools. Nobody likes to be called a tool, do they? Somebody said, you're a tool. Paul's basically calling himself a tool. I was just a tool. I was just an instrument in God's hands. And so was Apollos. Take our pictures off your wall. You can't give us any more credit than you can give a farmer for making the crops grow. I mean, can you, can you credit a farmer for the crops growing? The farmer plants, the farmer waters, the farmer fertilizes. But every night, he goes to bed, and he's not absolutely sure that things are going to grow. He can't know for sure that a bunch of locusts aren't going to come through and wipe it all out, or, or the floods aren't going to raise the river down the upstream and wash it all away. All he can do is be faithful. And Paul, I don't think, is really even talking about the farmer, the main guy here. Because he's talking about one group that comes in and plants and one group that comes in and harvests. That sounds to me more like migrant workers. I mean, migrant workers don't even have a home. They just roam from place to place looking for work, doing whatever they're able to do. You need me to do that? I'll do that for now. And then they move on and a completely different group comes on and harvests. And Paul says, that's what we're like. We're just coming in. We're doing our job. We're being faithful. It's God. 
God is the one causing things to grow. There's a church in this place because of what God has done through the power of his spirit. And so what are these church leaders? They're servants. And then Paul says, basically, you know, we're nothing. We're not anything. We're nothing. I looked up the definition of nothing. Nothing is what rocks think about. That's really nothing. We're not anything. The only one who gets the credit is God. He, notice, he gives the grace. He gives the growth. I got ahead of myself there. He gives the growth, meaning it's grace. It's all of his grace. It's a gift from him that there would be a church here, that you would be in the faith, that he would use us to make that happen. And so ministers and church leaders and really, really all of us who serve in the body in any way, we are not the main attraction. God is. You know, when we're, we're really, all of us who serve in the church are really like uh, Yitzhak Perlman's violin or Eddie Van Halen's guitar. When the concert's over and they leave the stage and the crowd just is going wild and will not leave, they don't take the violin or the guitar, put it on a cart and wheel it back out onto the stage. No, the maestro comes out. He's the attraction. He's the one they're clamoring for. And God says, that's what I'm, that's who I am. I use people. We have the privilege of being used by God, being, being tools, effective tools, being faithful in his hands. But God said, I, I cause the growth. You're going to be satisfied in me as the main attraction. We have the joy and the privilege of serving as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. So church leaders and all who minister in the local church are nothing in terms of the causation of the growth. And yet, I think this passage says we do play a role. There's a role. It's the role that God chooses to work through. And he chooses to work through means. And the means are a diverse collection of individuals saved by his grace, collected into local churches, who, as we're going to learn about more in 1 Corinthians, have a vast array of gifts, different each one from the other. But verse 8 reminds us that, that we serve together in an interdependent way. Our serving is, is interdependent. He who plants and he who waters, those are different roles, uh, but they're one. We work together. We serve together. And each person will receive their wages or their reward according to their labor. You see, the measurement of our success uh, is not a stat sheet. It's not, it's not the, 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 the month-end numbers. The measurement of our success as servants, as ministers in God's kingdom, is faithfulness, not raw results. Have we been faithful? Because at the end of the day, it's all about God. Those who serve are, his, are God's fellow workers. The church, notice, is God's field. That he is growing. He gets credit for the harvest. And the church, Paul says, is God's building. He is constructing it. The church is God's temple. His dwelling place. The place where he makes his presence great. And so here in, in the second part of the text, Paul corrects the Corinthian believers, their, their humanistic, this world way of thinking, which is rooted in their own pride and self-exaltation. He corrects it by clarifying uh, what the role of Christian leaders is and what the role of God is in growing his church. People are the means that God uses by his spirit to grow his church. And so the remedy for the disease is to adopt a God-centered perspective on Christian ministry and Christian growth. You need to adopt a God-centered perspective on Christian ministry and Christian growth. Their, their growth has been stunted uh, as a result of their reliance on, on human strength, on, on human power and initiative. And therefore, the remedy that addresses the disease, not just the symptoms, is to be humbled by the reality of, of God's work in growing his church. And the way these two things work together, 
And this is what I understand the main theme of this passage to be, is that when we understand God's way of growing his church, it enables us individually to grow as Christians. When we begin to understand how, how God grows his church, we understand it's all him and we are instruments in his hands. That enables us to grow spiritually. It, it humbles our pride when we understand that it's all about God. Two takeaways for us as we wrap this up this morning. Two more takeaways on the central role of God in growing his church. First is that the church belongs to God and he is committed to her growth. The church universal and each individual local expression of the church of Jesus Christ belongs to God. He is committed to its growth and he is committed to your growth. I said earlier, God is expecting growth. Well, guess what? God is committed to our growth and he's committed to the growth of this particular body, growing deeper, deeper, their roots deeper in the gospel, growing their roots wider in the community. All of this is a product of God's grace. And friends, I believe this passage ought to provide encouragement and perspective to a church that is looking for its next lead pastor. You see, God uses leaders in his church for a season and a time and a particular task to that season, yet they're merely his servants. And each one builds on the work of the previous leader. Each one's work will contribute to their particular season of ministry. But the work continues on. It continues on and it's going on right now under God's direction. So my encouragement, Kishwaukee Bible Church, is to lead into this process of introspection. Lead into what, where your leaders, lean into what your leaders are calling you to right now. Their objective is to help answer that question, where is God taking us as a church? How is he preparing us? We know that God is committed to the growth of his church. And then finally, the essential nature of ministry is servanthood. The essential nature, the baseline nature of ministry is servanthood. We, we are all his servants in the church. It's our privilege to serve. It is, it is God's grace. Twice Paul says it was a gift from God. It was a gift from God. It's our privilege to be used by God. He didn't have to choose that, his, that he would advance his kingdom purposes through the work of the body of Christ. That's all of him. And so we ought to seek to have a unity of, of purpose to affirm the diversity of our gifts and yet the unity of our mission together knowing that God is going to re reward us according to our labor. Not the results, but the faithfulness. Have we been faithful? Have you been faithful with how God has called you to serve among his people? Friends, Jesus, the master, showed us what this looks like. Jesus, the master, said to his servants that no servant is greater than their master. And he took the towel and the basin and he served his disciples and showed them what servanthood truly looks like. He gave us a model of servanthood. Listen to it again from the pen of Paul writing years after he wrote to the Corinthians, writing to the church at Philippi. What does servanthood look like? Where is the model of servanthood? It is in Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2 there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, let each of us, Look not only to the, our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God something to be grasped or, or hung on to. But he emptied himself. He set aside the need to be the king. He set aside the need to be glorified as king while yet being the king. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave us the model for servanthood and he set the precedent for servanthood. The broken body represented by the bread and the shed blood represented by the cup that we took together. Jesus was showing us, the, was showing us what servanthood looked like, that he came not to be served, but to serve by laying down his life as a ransom for many. And friends, that is how God grows his church. And that is how he will grow this church as we lay down our lives and give of ourselves for the good and for the eternal salvation of others. May it be so. Amen. God, we thank you that you love us and because you love your people, you are willing to correct us through your word and you're willing to, and you do point us to Jesus. And Jesus, we are grateful to you that you have uh, not only given us a picture or a model of servanthood, how you grow your church, but you have set the precedent by laying down your life to be our ransom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us again with your spirit. We pray that you would, you would focus our, our, the attention of our minds on Christ and that we would draw from the vast resources that you have to seek to grow this church, to seek to grow in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.